Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes. We'll be finishing our study in this book this morning, reading the last few verses, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 559. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Beloved congregation, this is your God's word to you this morning. Please give your attention to the reading of it. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil." This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he would be pleased to meet us in it and speak to us through it We this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears. You know our doubts. Flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith. Increase our understanding and allow us to receive through your word Your love, may it shine through the pages of your scripture. May your spirit be with us as we read and as we hear. May your spirit grant us that we might delight in all we encounter in your word. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever been on a raft... On a river, you probably learn that it's much easier to go with the current than against it. And so if you're smart, you'll get dropped off upstream, ride with the current, and then have someone pick you up downstream. If you're less smart, you'll ride downstream and then try to paddle your way back upstream. And if you're even less smart you'll have somebody drop you off downstream and try to paddle up. We laugh because who would do that, right? Only a fool or someone who likes punishment. The simple reality is it is hard to fight the current because the second you stop paddling, you're losing ground. And yet, isn't that exactly how so many of us live our lives? From the moment we are born... We are headed toward something, a rendezvous with death, with the grave. Life is temporary. It's short. This is where we're all headed. It's the direction of the river of life, if you will. And so what do we do? We fight against it. We, we try to conquer the grave. 
We struggle to be eternally young. We, we fight, we struggle, and then we're frustrated that no matter how hard we fight, we're, we're losing ground. Rather than fight, some people simply try to ignore the reality and they pretend that the river has no current. Each morning they wake up and notice that the landscape has changed. It doesn't look like it did yesterday. The scenery is different. And they sort of enter into an agreement with everybody else on the boat, or at least on the river, to pretend that they're not all headed the same direction, that things aren't really changing and so as they end the near or as they, they near the end of the river of the journey, they are totally unprepared. What's worse is they've wasted the journey. Distracted by games and diversions, the journey is almost over, and they realize they've missed it. But it's too late because this is a river. Life is a river you only go down once. But there are a few people who seem to get it, who seem to understand the river of life. They know where they're headed, and they've made peace with it. They seem to understand how to live within the limits of the river. They don't ignore reality, they don't fight against the current. They live each day as best as they can so that when the journey is over, they can say it wasn't wasted. And I think in many ways this is the message of Ecclesiastes. As we draw our study today of this book to an end, we want to see how the last few verses of this book, verses 9 through 14, rehearse the ground that we've already covered and drive home the central point. And I think it's this. A well-lived life is not in. A well-lived life is one lived in the fear of God, not death. A well-lived life is one where we live in the fear of God, not in the fear of death. I hope by the end uh, of this morning that will make sense. You understand what I mean by that. But I think what verse 10 is saying as Solomon begins, at least the first half of verse 10, Solomon, who's the preacher... That's how he's referred to in this book. Is that he sought words of, uh, or, or counsel of pleasure, of comfort. He sought out words that everyone likes to hear. And that's what he confessed in the first few chapters. He admitted that to that desire that's in all of us to do something so different, so amazing, that you'd never be forgotten. This is the impulse behind the infamous Tower of Babel. You remember how that episode begins? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. There is an inclination in every one of us to do something, to be unique. We want to believe that we are different, that we are truly exceptional. That we will be the one to accomplish something that makes everyone look at us and just stand in awe. We all want to be admired, even revered. And we fear being forgotten. 
We want a legacy. And Solomon was no different. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because in wanting to be unique, wanting to be special, we prove that we are just like everyone else. This is the unavoidable reality. We want to achieve God-like fame and notoriety, and yet what do we do? We live average lives, we die average deaths, and like everyone else, we're forgotten. So what was Solomon's solution? In chapter 2, we read about his attempt to drown his frustration in pleasure. He was rich. He was powerful. He had, the, he had the resources of the world at his fingertips. And he used those resources to create a world of decadent pleasure. He turned no temptation away. His life became a huge party. Simply put, he had everything we think we want. But was it enough? Solomon learned that hard lesson that so many before him and so many after him have learned. You can't drown reality. It always resurfaces. And so no matter how hard he tried to use pleasure, to to run from reality, from life. He couldn't do it. No matter how deep he he hid in pleasure and alcohol and distractions, he couldn't silence reality, his conscience, and the voice of his maker. And his story is so tragically common Every year, our headlines are littered with those who have reached what they thought was success, fame, popularity, only to discover that that pleasure can't erase pain, that, that fame doesn't conquer your insecurities, that fans don't fix loneliness. And when faced with such reality, the temptation is, is to turn to despair. Turn your feelings off and become numb to everything. Let nothing affect you because if it can't reach you, it can't hurt you. And if you can't do that on your own, there's always drugs and alcohol. Eventually, some simply choose to check out. But Solomon... He did the absolute unthinkable in that situation. He stared truth in the face and stopped living in denial. The one who sought words of pleasure and delight ended up what? Writing words of truth. He confessed that that life is a parade of seasons. Laughter and tears of sowing and reaping, of killing and healing, of loving and hating, of being born and dying. He didn't like all those realities, but he no longer saw the point in trying to ignore them. 
Since chapter 3 marks this transition in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon stops trying to paddle against the current. He resigned himself to the brevity of life, and rather than causing despair, it freed him up to ask those important questions in life, the most important questions in life, questions like, if life is temporary and short, what should we do with it? How should we spend those, those few days we have on this big blue ball? What really matters in life? And so letting go of all the entrapments that he thought he wanted, he turns to relationships as what are what important. Chapter 4, he says two are better than one. Invest in people, not wealth. Friendships, marriages, family, these are the things that matter. No one beats the clock, so spend the few days you have where they count. And then in chapter 5, he confesses, what's the most important relationship? It's not your parents, your marriage, your children, or your friends. The most important thing you will do in your short life is the very thing most people spend their life trying to avoid. You have one chance to make peace with God. When you die, it is too late. Now, I want to be clear on what I mean by by make peace with God. I don't mean that you can save yourself. I'm not saying that somehow it's within your power to patch up that broken relationship. What I mean is this. When we come into this world, we are worshipers of self. We don't want to listen to anyone or anything. We want to make our own rules, chart our own course. We don't want anyone to tell us that what we are doing is wrong and that we need to change. Even when it comes to worshiping God, we want to set the terms, make the rules, and choose the when, why, and how. What we don't want to do is what chapter 5 tells us to do. Guard your steps when you enter into the house of your God. We don't want to shut our mouths and open our ears. We don't want to be reminded that God remembers everything we say and that he holds us accountable. God is the only one who knows where this river is headed. His voice is the only one worth listening to. And so the great mystery of life is that peace is only found in surrendering our misperception that we are in control. We don't like where life is headed. We don't like that seasons change without our permission. We don't like that we are headed somewhere with no seeming ability to change course. And so we fight and we deny. We get angry. We grow depressed. But when we learn to accept reality and the fact that we can't change it, we have the unique opportunity to say, maybe my purpose in life isn't to change the course. 
And there's a peace that, that comes with accepting that you cannot change it. A peace that comes in resigning yourself to the shortness of life. And when you do this, you'll see that God's goals aren't your goals. He's more interested in who you are and what you are becoming. He's more concerned with your character than he is your comfort. This trip down the river of life isn't simply meant to be endured. What an incredible waste that would be. I endured life. It's over now. Phew. As if there's no point to it. This, this journey is meant to change you. It's meant to shape you so that you cling less and less to what is fleeting and more to more what is eternal. What is lasting. The worst thing God could do during your life is let you think that you are in control because that would lead you ultimately to think that you can control Him. That's what we try to do, isn't it? Isn't that what Ecclesiastes addressed, those different ways we try to control God with our good works, our, our knowledge, or the, our relationships? We try to force God to do our will, try to control Him. It's okay. We can admit it. But if God didn't confront our foolishness, we would be absolutely and totally unprepared for the end of the journey. Because on the day you stand before your Creator, you will not be calling the shots. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you can prepare for that day. So God's words, according to verse 11 of our passage, are His wise words are like goads. Talking with my girls this week about what goads are. They're sticks with nails at the end that shepherds use to encourage their sheep to go in the right direction. That's quite an image, isn't it? Shepherds would jab and poke their flock to direct them where they need to go. Why? Because sheep will go a wrong direction if they're given the opportunity. They will go into dangerous territory. And the only thing that, that gets their attention sometimes is a sharp poke in the ribs. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes that's what God's word feels like. Like someone stabbing me in the ribs, nailing me to the wall. And of course we don't like it. It's painful. And so what's the temptation? It's to search high and low for some loophole. Some way to justify our foolish pursuits. To find a way to prove that God is wrong. That, that he's just being mean. And that the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Solomon's been there. He gets that. Look at verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, these wise words. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. He's talking about those attempts 
to seek out some way to justify our foolishness. And he's saying, stop fighting. Surrender. Stop swimming against the current, kicking against the goads. God's not punishing you. He's guiding you. He is, he is the shepherd. You are the sheep. He knows where all of this is headed and he knows what matters. When all is said and done, when all the clutter is pulled away, when everything is stripped down to the most basic and essential truth, this is God's goal for you, that you would learn to fear Him and obey Him. Now we tend to think of fear as a bad thing, as a negative thing. And to be sure it can be, the most common command in Scripture is fear not. And then Ecclesiastes says, and the most important thing you can do is fear God. But fear is only bad when we give it to the wrong thing. Because fear, this is important, is really esteem. We give our fear to things that we think are powerful and worthy of our awe. In a sense, fear is the flip side of faith. When we give our fear to things which have no right to it, we are suggesting that they are powerful and to be revered. When we fear something more than we fear God, we are saying that whatever we fear more than God is more powerful than He is. Because we fear things that we can't control. And if we fear something more than God, we think He can't control it. And we're giving them an honor to which they are not entitled. But when we fear God above all else, what we're saying is that there is none greater than He. None more powerful. That nothing can conquer Him or frustrate His plans. And isn't that the message of Ecclesiastes? That we are constantly fearing everything but God. If we don't learn to fear God... We will never learn to trust Him. If we never trust Him, we will never know what it is to surrender to Him and the peace that belongs to all who do. And this is why Ecclesiastes ends where it does. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Life only makes sense when it's lived with the end in sight, with the end in view. The journey you are on only makes sense when you understand where it is headed. Whether a life is well lived or not depends on whether it is lived with the end of the journey in sight and whether you are ready for the end. And to understand this, we want to return one last time to that word that seems to be everywhere in Ecclesiastes, that word vanity. I told you at the beginning that the Hebrew word really means breath or mist. The Bible uses this word to teach us that life is short, it is the merest of breaths. But I also mentioned that it's someone's name in the Bible. Abel. 
In fact, historically, the Jewish understanding of Ecclesiastes 6, 3 through 6, is that it's about Cain and Abel. Let me read that to you. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. I For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. For though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Traditionally, interpreters believe that the man who fathered a hundred children, that is, many descendants, is Cain. And the stillborn child referred to Abel, whose life was cut short just as it was beginning. And if we simply judge these two brothers from an earthly perspective, Abel's life didn't amount to much. He was a lowly shepherd. He never married, had children, did anything world-changing. All we know about him is that he feared God and worshipped him. Cain, on the other hand, Cain was someone to be feared. He wasn't someone you wanted to cross. He was the founder of a city, the patriarch of a large family. He was a wealthy power broker. His life was much longer than his brother's, but it was still temporary. Eventually, like his brother, he rested in the grave, as Ecclesiastes says, do not all go to the one place. Did he look back over his life on that day and say it was a life well lived? Was he truly more successful than his lowly brother who never accomplished anything and had only a short life? Not at all. When all was said and done, Cain's life was wasted and Abel's was well spent. Not because Cain sinned and Abel didn't, but because Abel feared God and Cain feared everything but God. Because God never measures a life by its length. If he did, Jesus would have not been worth much. What characterized Jesus' life? Well, it was short, he was poor. He was insignificant in the world's eyes. He was mistreated. He surrendered all. But what did he accomplish through that short life? On the one hand, he could, we could say that he did all we all hoped to do, but never actually do. He truly changed the world. But even that doesn't really do justice to what he did because he didn't do it for the reasons we long ego and the pursuit of self-glory. He laid down his life for those he loved and he counted what was eternal as more important than what was temporary, pleasant, and easy. And he didn't live his life as if death were the most powerful force in the universe. He knew better. And so he lived for the glory of his Father above all else. It was a well-lived life. 
If you want your life to be well lived, if you don't want to waste the journey, but use the time you have as it was intended to be used by the one who gave it to you, then you must live each day with the end goal in sight. You must know nothing. You must believe nothing is more powerful than God, not even death. And so nothing is worthy of your fear but God. Fearing God is really just another way of saying there's none more powerful than Him, that nothing can control Him, that you can place all your hope and confidence in Him, that you can pursue Him as long as you have air in your lungs. If you do that, if you can live life with that perspective, then the end of the journey and the shortness of life don't need to be overwhelming and terrifying because you know what lies ahead and you're prepared. But it's even more than this. In the, in the last few chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon actually starts finding comfort in the very thing that once frustrated him. Once you realize that life is not simply about your glory, once you resign yourself to the reality that there will be good seasons and hard, once you realize that hard times are actually shaping you, helping you grow, hard but necessary, preparing you for eternity, once you realize all these things, then you're able to look forward to the end of the journey knowing that the hard seasons themselves are temporary and one day will come to an end. Then you're able to see the shortness, the brevity of life as a comfort and not a threat. You see, there's a power in having the right perspective. Better yet, there's a peace that comes from seeing things rightly. It is this perspective that allows you to live life well. When you rightly understand life, when you rightly understand where it is headed, then you focus on God and you know what it is to fear Him above all else. And it's then that you're living life well. The benefit of perspective comes to our aid as well as we approach the table before us. From one perspective, it might be seen as an inadequate snack. Just enough bread to remind you of your hunger, but not satisfy it. Just enough wine to remind you of your thirst, but not quench it. From that perspective, the Lord's Supper can only be a frustration, a disappointment, a picture of what it means to be in want, a painful reminder of life's frustrations. But there's another perspective. It's a reminder of the wedding supper of the Lamb that will be ours on the last day. And at that feast, every need you have will be perfectly satisfied. On that day, suffering will be no more. Every tear will be dried. And we will know joy completely and fully. Seen this way, the Lord's Supper is a reminder 
of where we are headed and what awaits us. From that perspective, the Lord's Supper is a comfort, not a frustration. It's a picture of what it means to be loved, a joyous reminder of heaven's blessings. And so let us come and through this meal catch a glimpse of the end of the journey and the heaven that awaits. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this this morning. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, host of the heavenly banquet, we confess that we have many misplaced fears. We fear men, we fear poverty, we fear ridicule. And these fears have led us to live poorly. For you alone are worthy, worthy of our fear, worthy of our trust, and worthy of our worship. Help us to be wise in our fear. Help us to live well. Teach us to take comfort in the promise that the present sufferings are short and the glory to come is eternal. Even so, we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.